Hey there, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. This show is across the pond because we're recording it over here in the United States, uh, right outside of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly and sisterly love. Got That's it. what our city means, Philadelphia. And we, every week, are talking about red-letter Christianity. Uh, the old Bibles have the words of Jesus often highlighted in red, and uh, we're asking ourselves, what if Jesus meant that stuff? For us, Jesus is the lens through which we are understanding the whole of Scripture uh, and the world that we live in. Uh, but it's also a great way that we can converse with folks uh, on this show. We get to have a lot of guests, and we got a really special one today. He's uh, been on here a couple of times with us, Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, uh, an incredible brother um, who is right on the front lines trying to figure out how we can build a better world, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the the uh, painful things happening in Israel and Palestine. He's moved to uh, Jerusalem and uh, lives there uh, because he wants to be where the action is. He's been inviting us over there. I think yeah. we're going to get over there, we're, aren't we? We are. Yet? We're going to come over for a visit. Listen, you just went through an election. What's the outcome? And I guess it may still be ambiguous. Um, what are your reflections on that? Uh, specifically, how does this election reflect on relationships between uh, Palestinians and Israelis? Uh, so I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys uh, uh, having me on the show, uh, even though you, you are some of the most dangerous people around because you threaten to give religion a good name again. <laughs> but that's why I love you guys. And I'm glad that on a show devoted to red letter Christianity, you decided to have a blood relative of Jesus uh, actually <laughs> contributing to the conversation. So that's about the only um, non-ambiguous thing I can offer on this program today. The election, as you know, is very much up in the air. It may take weeks, and it could conceivably take months before things shake out. As you know, it's a parliamentary uh, system over there, and nobody got a majority, and everybody now has to do some backroom uh, wheeling and dealing to try to put together the crucial 61 votes out of 120 that you need for coalition. What really has changed is that the people who literally hold the future of the Jewish state in their hands at the moment and the future of the much appreciated and much maligned Bibi Netanyahu are Arab Israelis. Arab Israelis uh, got 13 seats. Last time I checked, it's the third largest block in uh, the Israeli election, and they can decide who will be the next prime minister merely by a phone call to one of the two main contenders. And stop say, stop there just We're for a moment. Stop there just for a moment. A lot of people in our listening audience have no idea that there are Arab peoples in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. They think it's all Israelis uh, who are Jewish people. And here you're saying, no, there are Israelis who are Arab peoples. You can comment on that and continue on what, what you were saying. 20% of the people, of uh, the citizens of the state of Israel, are Israeli Arabs. They are descendants of the 150,000 um, Arabs who stayed in uh, what became Israel in 1948. They are one and a half to two million people today, a full 20% of the, of the population. Um, 
All street signs in Israel are bilingual, which is better than what happened in California, where there's a big uh, to-do about Spanish bilingual education. Um, there's an Arab member of the Supreme Court. One Arab member of the Supreme Court once sent a former uh, president to jail. Oh, yes. Uh, it's not a perfect society, but 55% of Israeli Arabs. Now, we're not talking about some of the people we all ought to be concerned about, those who are called sometimes the Palestinians, those on the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, to others. Um, 55% of Israeli Arabs call themselves proud citizens of the state of Israel. They have complaints about the government. I suspect that their complaints about the government don't even come close to my complaints about the government having come from the United States and having a higher standard. But they are proud of Israel. Uh, they uh, do not like the idea of its defining itself as a, as a Jewish state, and I can understand that. But they uh, have a good life and for the most part live um, side by side with, uh, with Jews. When I shop in a supermarket, I shop on a line with, um, with Israeli Arabs. We have cordial relations. And that's in Jerusalem, which is a flashpoint. In places outside of Jerusalem, relations between Jews and Arabs are, is a lot better. Now, again, I'm not whitewashing what's happening on the on the West Bank. That's a different thing entirely, and that's where we all have to work a little harder to try to figure out how to get some peace there. We are people, uh, Shane and I, who very much are supportive of a two-state solution to the conflicts that have existed between the state of Israel and the Palestinian people. Uh, what do you think is the future of a two-state solution? I, I think that a two-state solution is inevitable. Uh, I know there are lots of uh, my friends who wouldn't be so happy with that, although I think that it is the position of the majority of Israelis, and uh, it teeters between an out-and-out majority to close to majority. But it, it will happen because the cost of Israel's controlling the lives of of, of, of millions of very unhappy people who have wanted their own state from the same time uh, that, that Jews got their state, uh, the price is just as high on the Jewish soul. There has to be some kind of a separation, federation, a, a proposal that uh, I know uh, you, Tony, have, have uh, backed in the past, but there, there has to be something like that. The problem is, let's say, let's say, uh, on Yom Kippur, which is coming up, everybody says, you know, we really got to do something for our Palestinian neighbors. And tomorrow we're pulling out of the West Bank. We're going to destroy all the settlements and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk uh, terms of, of, a, of a state with our Palestinian neighbors. Which neighbors, pray tell, would that be? Would that be the PA? Abbas, who is hated even more than the Israeli government by most people on, on the West Bank, a kleptocracy, Abbas now, I think, in his 19th year of a three-year session uh, that he was elected to. Are we talking about Hamas in Gaza that is pledged to the destruction of the state of Israel in its entirety? 
we talking about Nasrallah in Hezbollah up north, who is pledged not only to the destruction of the state of Israel, but has said that Jews are invited to come back to Israel because it'll make it easier for him to destroy all of them if they can be found in one place. Who <laughs> will this state be run by? Will it become just another unstable state in a very unstable region that will become a launching pad for ISIS, for jihadists? Right now, the, the, the Palestinian people have been held captive by a leadership that they don't deserve. They deserve much better. But that leadership has for decades treated adults, children, with the worst kind of incitement. Despite all kinds of, of denials, European countries, which have been hostile to Israel and friendly to the PA, have been pulling away support from the PA in droves just in recent months because the new textbooks put out by the PA are no better than the old ones and in some cases even worse. The PA still has a, pray, a, a pay for slay um, program in which the people who are paid first are families of anyone who has been convicted of killing or maiming Jews. In such, a, in such a society, I, I'm afraid that the only way to pave the route to, to, uh, to peace is for groups of Israelis and Palestinians to get to know each other, to cooperate economically, something which is happening and growing in leaps and bounds, for them both to discover that they hate the government, the Israeli think, government, yeah. sometimes equally. Let, let, let me interrupt there the race. There has to be a little bit of time, just to finish the sentence, in which the effects of that incitement are allowed to wane again. Right now, the highest level of anti-Semitism, not talking about anti-Israelism, anti-Semitism in the entire world is in the West Bank, where 93% of people have extreme anti-Semitic views, according to a recent poll. Okay, that's a that's really a good description of some of the pain uh, that uh, Jewish people uh, in the Israeli state have to endure. The uh, reverse is that uh, uh, the Palestinians are raising questions. They're basically raising this question. Uh, uh, Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister of the past, he may be a prime minister in the future, depending on how things are resolved politically, uh, has said, I, I want to annex... Uh, all the um, all the settlements uh, and make the settlements part of the state of Israel. Uh, did he say that? And if he did, uh, what are the implications of that for inflaming hostilities uh, towards uh, the Jewish people, uh, given uh, where the uh, Palestinians are on this issue? They, they, they will inflame them. However, um, if, if you look at things objectively and realize there were two components that people overlooked, Part of it was grandstanding in front of an election and trying to get more votes from the right. The other part was that the, the thing that the area that he was talking about in annexing is not a high population area and is an area that every peace proposal uh, in the last 30 years has acknowledged has to somehow stay somewhat within uh, Israeli military sovereignty, because you can't have an open border with Jordan on the east, 
without some kind of military control. It is an area, this area that he's talking about annexing, it's not all of the West Bank. It's not the settlements that people speak about most of the time. There are, there are Palestinian small villages and small Jewish settlements. For the most part, it's empty land. I'm not saying it's a great thing uh, for those people who are looking for a breakthrough uh, on, the, uh, on, on making peace or establishing a two-state solution. But I think the breakthrough has to come when there's somebody on the other side who's a, capable of sitting down and willing to sit down. Uh, Netanyahu, whether you like him or not, has said he's prepared to sit down without any preconditions, and the answer has always been the same. We are not going to sit down and even talk. Thanks, Rabbi. Just to reintroduce you, uh, we're talking with Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, uh, uh, who's living in Jerusalem, navigating uh, the complex uh, situation there uh, in the Holy Land. And uh, um, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. For those of you that might have just joined us, uh, the show's called Across the Pond. We're over here in the United States uh, recording, and we, we like talking about things that matter in the world uh, because Jesus, when he talked about the kingdom of God, it wasn't just something we go to when we die, but something that uh, Jesus teaches us that we are to pray and to live into uh, the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. I do have to add that uh, he is the director of Interfaith Affairs for the uh, Simon Wiesenthal uh, Center in Los Angeles. And I guess it's not just in Los Angeles, it's in Jerusalem. It's all over the world, but uh, there's offices in Los Angeles. And um, he's been working to get uh, people of other faiths into dialogue with the uh, Israeli community. That's why we're glad to have him on the show. Um we, we we wanted to talk just a little bit. We've we've done this before, Rabbi, but uh, we're very concerned about the state of our country. And uh, even though a lot of our listeners are outside the United States, um, uh, you know, Donald Trump has surfaced uh, some very ugly things in our country, namely, uh, really some overt uh, racism and uh, bigotry and and uh, uh, and it's it's been said that Donald Trump didn't. Uh, change America, he revealed America, but there's certainly an emboldening of many folks who, um, when they say make America great again, they may they often mean make America white again, uh, and there's a lot of overt anti-Semitism and racism that surfaced, and we, we'd love to hear your thoughts, Rabbi, on uh, the, the uh, state of our country right now over here. Specifically, as we relate to Donald Trump, who has become the, a hot point for our focus these days. But this would be a lot harder if I weren't talking to, to two uh, very, very popular religious leaders who have a lot of clout with people who, who have faith in God, which is the, the thing that brings the three of us the closest. As you said, Shane, Donald Trump didn't create this. He revealed it. It's an ugly side of America. There are beautiful sides of America as well. The very the very passion and the reaction against some of the things that our president has done is, is cause for celebration. Uh, the, the average American is very turned off by racism, by emboldening uh, racism, uh, by, by dog whistles to it. 
and yet you have millions of Americans who say, you know, he's giving a voice to something that was suppressed for so long during the years before. What, what I propose for, for people of, of faith is the following very, very partial solution. We're seeing in the last, the last couple of years of the presidency in particular, the power of words, the power of words to divide, uh, the, the, the way in which you can marry passion to words and, and produce violence and hatred and division and dissension. And words can be and are expected by God to be used in the opposite way. Now, one thing in particular, my small solution, is that people that I know that I'm, I'm friendly with who are supporters of, of the president, very, very conflicted because they see the president, and I am not going to trash him. I think that there's a certain respect to the presidency that uh, almost no matter what I'm going to retain, um, but they're very disappointed that, uh, um, that in some of, let's say, the moral confusion and flaws in the man, and how can you how can you how can you support how can you vote for somebody like that as people of faith as people of faith in the changing world i think one of the things that we really have to do is is get our children not to look at politicians at sports stars at celebrities as the people as the heroes that they should be looking uh, looking up for looking up to and god knows we have thousands and thousands of real live heroes who are the moral paragons, who are the moral beacons, who are the people that we should be telling stories about or writing about in weekly magazines. I know we do that in the Orthodox Jewish community. In our weeklies, the people who are, who are held up for uh, adulation are people who are often unknown in the community, but when you read about who they are, the depth of their character, what they've contributed, you, 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 you create a different model for people to look up to. We don't need to look up to our politicians for that. Let's judge our politicians on the basis of what they, what they deliver. Now, in terms of the dissension that he's, that he's breeding in America, it's, 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 it's true, and uh, don't think that there's less of this going on in Europe with the rise of the, the far right in country after country. That is not happening in the United States so much. We're talking, about, we're talking about people who are linked by social media but have not yet become political parties. That's not the case on the continent. We need to have good people who are, who are confident and certain about their values and proclaiming uh, yeah. those values publicly. Well, let's talk about that because one of those values for us that I think we share, Rabbi, is hospitality, especially to those who um, are vulnerable or, or suffering. Uh, the Hebrew Scriptures says that we're to welcome the foreigner as if they were our own flesh and blood because we ourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Of course, Jesus says when we welcome the stranger, we welcome him. Um, the the he Hebrews in the New Testament says we show hospitality to the foreigner. We are maybe entertaining angels unaware. So this is really holy work to take in people. And our, our mutual friend, uh, Johnny Moore, has been uh, trying to get uh, President Trump to think about persecuted Christians around the world. And yet one of the things that really is breaking my heart is it looks like 
the number of refugees that the United States is going to take in is going to hit a historic low. And we actually have this administration like cutting our numbers of people that we're going to take in possibly to 30,000 or so, uh, like a third of what they've been at, and, at times in, in recent past. And, and then President makes statement, if we're taking in immigrants, we don't want them from, quote unquote, those shit nations in Africa and Haiti. Uh, when you begin to talk about those people as being uh, uh, citizens of a shit nation, you have done something to the American psyche that is evil in the highest order. Yeah, so, so well, talk a little bit about that value of hospitality and how, uh, you know, I, I mean, do you have concerns about that, too, of what we're seeing from uh, this administration uh, and, and kind of that dual language of we care about persecuted Christians around the world, but we're sure not going to take many people in here? You know, that, 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 is, that is disturbing. Uh, we did have high expectations, uh, and Johnny and, and you and I, when the administration got started. And there, was, there were some positive developments, but yes, it is stalled uh, at, at, at the moment. Part of the problem is that not enough of us recognize that the, the problem in high-minded uh, rhetoric about, about spreading the wealth with everyone is that there are, there are legitimate concerns. And when some people make it seem as if there should be total, totally open borders and we have inexhaustible funds to be able to pay for whoever comes in, uh, which is not the position of most Americans, but enough people are saying it that there's pushback on the other side. We need to have some kind of policy that, that, that does acknowledge the concerns of, uh, of, of others. Uh, you know, the passage in the Bible that you're quoting is, is there and it's repeated in a few places, but it's not talking about welcoming other people in from the outside so much as people who are already living there and feel marginalized and strange, and your job is to make them feel at home. That doesn't mean that everyone has a right to join and and be supported on the public on the public dollar. Right, only, but people people sound- do have a right to to seek asylum and I was just down in the border and I met the folks uh, in these encampments. There's now like over 12,000 people, you know, that are in line down there uh, in Mexico trying to seek asylum and I heard the things that they are escaping. Um, you know, the burning of the Amazon, the persecutions that are happening around the world and they're just trying to seek asylum legally. Um uh, and and uh, they're they're being treated like less than human, and it, it's really really heartbreaking to see. Uh, and we only have a just about a minute and a half for you to comment on a very important subject to our listeners. Tell us about how evangelicals play into all of this. Well, e- evangelicals are still the most religious element in the United States in a time of declining interest in organized religion. And evangelicals are not laden with layers and layers and layers of organization and looking over the shoulder. They can vote their conscience and they can preach the simple, the simple truth and faith. And I, I think that they have an outsize uh, uh, influence and obligation to weigh in on important, on important issues. 
uh, those issues need to be thoroughly thought through, as I was saying before. But I, I think they're, they are both in size and, and in, in potential impact, uh, perhaps the most important group in, the, in the, the United States. If you permit me three seconds, I have to make one recommendation for anybody who's yeah, interested. Great. In Israel-Palestine, there's a New York Times bestseller written by a friend of mine. Literally, it is on the New York Times bestseller list. I think you will love it if you haven't read it yet, but it is the most fair and balanced treatment of the narratives of two sides and of the path to... to Name it, we're running out of time. The name is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor by Yossi Klein Halevi, including uh, feedback from Palestinians unedited. Great. It's a short book. It's an important one. Got it. Beautiful. It's been a good conversation, as usual, with our friend Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein. Thanks, Rabbi, for joining us, and thank you all for listening in. This is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. Uh, You can go to our website, and uh, it's redletterchristians.org. We've also launched Red Letter Christians in the UK, and it's stirring in other places in the world. So sign up, join the movement of folks who want a, a Christianity that acts like Jesus again. And if in you're the in the UK, go to redletterchristians.org. UK. In the United States, it's just redletterchristians.org. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.